three years ago, I had a rude awakening. I had been, had been to seminary. I was trained theologically. I was an adequate preacher. I felt called to plant a church, and I had convinced 34 people to come to my living room for the purpose of planting a church. And they all showed up on a Wednesday night for the first time. And I stood up, and I realized that all these people are waiting for me to lead them. And I don't know how. It was a terrible sinking feeling, honestly. It was really unsettling all of a sudden to realize that I was theologically astute. I could preach. I felt like I had some ministry tools. But I hadn't thought about what does it really mean to lead. And the only kind of well that I had to draw from was I assumed that a leader is a boss. That's what I had seen. I had, I had seen folks lead in the, in the public sphere in different work positions, and I had thought, okay, well, a leader is someone who has the answers. They have the authority. They call the shots. And all of a sudden, I was standing in this place and going, I, I, I don't think that that's going to suffice, and I actually don't think that that's what I'm called to in this space. And I had this real crisis of personal faith and realization that I don't know that I have thought through what is required of me and called of me to actually lead these people in such a way that we create a culture that presses into the darkness of our city, bringing the gospel in power in a way that we are creating a culture where Jesus is, is dwelling in our midst. I didn't have the tools for it. And so over the last several years, it has become a passion. It's something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about and working on, and I've merely scratched the surface. I don't profess to be an expert. I don't feel like I've cracked the code. I have a long way to go. But from what I have gathered, I want to just, I want to give the little bit that I've been able to lay hold of in hopes that it might be helpful for you. Because if we have not begun to think through the gospel implications for our leadership, taking a different model than just boss, than just answer man, than authority figure, if that is still the mechanisms that we most quickly run to in thinking about how do I lead and lead effectively, we have not allowed the gospel to shape our understanding of leadership. And so what we long for, what I'm praying for for our time as we close today is that this, the implications of the gospel would continue to settle down into our lives, that our very lives, I got to speak yesterday about the fact that the cross of Christ should shape the, our, our preaching. The very shape and direction and aim of our preaching should be reordered if the cross is real to us. What I'd like to argue today is this. Your very life, the way that you structure your words, the way that you structure your interactions, the way that your leadership takes shape, it should look like the cross. Cruciformed leadership. What we're going to see today in the second half of 2 Corinthians is Paul's further explanation. We said yesterday that in writing to Corinth, he's dealing with people who have been inundated with super apostles. Leaders and preachers that are very impressive and polished. They are people that have all of the answers and they want everyone to know they have all of the answers. And now Paul is being demeaned in the eyes of the church he planted. And so yesterday he was, he was in some ways defending and explaining his message. And we will see him make a shift in the middle of 2 Corinthians 4 where he begins to explain how he has been embodying that message in the way that he leads. And so what we see is in this one chapter of scripture, Paul explaining into this Corinthian context what gospel-centered preaching and gospel-centered leadership looks like. 
So we're going to press this chapter through to the conclusion today and see if we can learn from Paul how our leadership can become shaped by the gospel itself. So we're going to pick up 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 7. Just before we read, would you permit me to remind you what the prophet Isaiah says about the scriptures? The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. There are so many things that are calling for your attention. There are so many things that are calling for the attention of your people that you're shepherding. They lie, these things lie to them daily saying, trust me, place your hope in me. But the truth is those things, things that we can see and touch and feel, they're coming undone. They're moving towards chaos and towards death. When we come to the word of God, we're in touch with something eternal and life-giving and powerful. Let's pay attention to it. Let's give it to our people. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure, the treasure of that message that we were preaching yesterday, this understanding of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. And it's almost as if Paul's going, in case you didn't read the last sentence, let me write it to you again. Verse 11, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so also we speak, we speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also Pardon me, will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Verse 16, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I think what Paul has just made available to us is a few things. He's made available to us the activity of gospel-centered leadership. What is it that we are called to do if we are going to be gospel-centered leaders? I think he has showed us what the outcome of gospel-centered leadership is. What we should expect to see if we are gospel-centered leaders. And finally, I think he's going to show us by what means this happens in us. So let's take it from the first, the activity of gospel-centered leadership. I can summarize it in a single word for you. It's a word that he repeats time and again, and it's this. The activity of gospel-centered leadership is death. If you are signing up to lead God's people, if you raise your hand and say, I'm called and I'm ready, praise God, but know this, you have signed up to die. 
That's the call. And I think he explains it to us in a number of ways. What I'd like to do is both sketch out basic biblical realities of what that death looks like. And then within those three basic biblical realities, I'm going to give you, it's not an exhaustive list, but it's a true list. I wanted to make this as practical as possible. I'm going to give you, let's call it the Ten Commandments of death as a leader. Okay, how it actually takes place. So I'm going to give you these three principles, and within those, I'm going to lay out a few of these, these charges. If you are going to be this sort of leader, this is what it's going to look like. Okay, The first biblical reality, what does it mean, death? I think the first reality that emerges is this. It's death to being impressive. Verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. When it comes time for Paul to describe his role. He's dealing with these super apostles who have been so impressive and so over the top, and now he's described his message, and when it comes to his message being described, he says, well, how am I carrying this message around? I'm a jar of clay. He defines his role and his understanding in this process as one that is cheap and easily replaced, but entirely necessary. The jar of clay for these people is the most commonly used thing in their home, Incredibly necessary. It does all sorts of things. Incredibly functional, but cheap and easily replaced. When it comes time for Paul to begin to define what is my role here, what does it look like for me to die, the first thing he's saying is I need to die to be impressive. I'm not gold. I'm not silver. I'm not gleaming. I'm not valuable. I'm not impressive. I'm a jar of clay. What he's saying is my desire and my devotion to being impressive has to die. We said the same in our preaching. It shouldn't be a surprise that the cross calls the same thing out of our preaching that it calls out of our lives. That all of a sudden we are, we are realizing that we must begin to take the position of John the Baptist. You know, John the Baptist in John 1 through 3 plays a really prominent position as the gospel is getting started. And as he gets pressed by the crowds, he's this really famous preacher, the most famous preacher in the land, and thousands are flocking to him. But as we've been reminded even yesterday that he pointed at Jesus and said, but there's the one. And it's interesting that when he speaks about himself, he uses the word not over and over and over. He goes, it's not me. I'm not the guy. It's not me. It's not me. And he's just pointing at Jesus. And then when they, they press him in John 3, well, who are you? He says, I'm a finger. I'm a voice. I just want you to see him. And then he uses this analogy. You know the analogy he uses? He says, I'm the best man. He's describing the wedding, and he wants us to imagine that here is the groom, and here is the bride, and he says, my role is the best man. The best man is meant to stand next to the groom and make him look great. That's his role. But I want you to imagine, I, so one of the things that I've done over the, over the last several years, I've done a lot of weddings. My wife is a wedding coordinator, and I'm a young pastor, and so what it means is like we're a one-stop shop. <laughs> All of these couples, we've done marriage counseling for about 70 couples over the last four or five years, and we've done those weddings where she will arrange the wedding, and then I will officiate. So she sends them down the aisle to me. You know, she's back there, I'm up here. And uh, I just want you to imagine standing in one of these moments where everything's set, it's this beautiful moment. The doors open. I don't, I don't know if all of this translates culturally. The, the, your weddings look like American weddings, something like this. The doors open. The bride is radiant and prepared for her groom. Everybody's watching. You know, that moment, 
waiting for the groom to see the bride. She starts making her way down the aisle, and then all of a sudden you realize something's off. Because just over the shoulder of the groom stands the best man. And he's going, <laughs> winking, kissing, beckoning, right? Come see me. In that moment, what would happen? What would happen? Everybody would be disgusted, going, what is this? What? This is not the way it's supposed to be. And imagine the heart of the groom in that moment. Going, really? You're, you're going to blow kisses at her and call her to yourself? Brothers, when we desire to be impressive leaders in the life of Jesus' church, that's us. We're looking at the bride and going, oh, come to me. Praise me. Delight in me. Bow down to me. We stand over the shoulder of the groom and we beckon the bride to ourselves. And as long as we lead in that way, the gospel will run out the door. No matter how many messages we preach about it, our lives will preach a contrary message that will cut the legs out from under it. It will make it very difficult for your people to get to Jesus because you're blowing kisses at them. You see, the first reality is that we have to die to being impressive. We have to be willing to stand with John the Baptist and say, I will be the best man, and I just want you to get to the groom. If I may, four of the first ten practical commandments, ways you can live this out, ways that you can step aside and stand over the shoulder of the groom. This isn't an exhaustive list, but I hope it's a helpful one. The first one, I mentioned it briefly yesterday, listen more than you speak. One of the things that I was convinced of is that if I was going to be this shining leader that was able to lead my people really well, I would always be the one speaking because I had the answers, I knew where we were going, I could direct people. And what God began to break me of is that gospel communication is more about understanding the heart of another than making your own views known. That's Philippians 2, settling into our words. Jesus considering others more valuable than himself, that he would lay his life down. If you are constantly filling the space with your words because everyone needs to know what you have to say. Now, I'm not saying we've been entrusted to teach and to preach and to direct. Don't mishear me. But what I mean is that when you are out of the pulpit and spending time with your people, if I were able to just film the last meal or coffee or counseling time you were with someone and it's just you talking, what you are doing is you're beginning to step into this space and going, what you really need is me. That's what you really need, as opposed to drawing out their heart and getting them to Jesus. We have to become a people that, that listen really well, that love to draw out the heart of another. It's an incredibly humbling work, but what it's doing is it's displacing you rightly. And you, as an aside, you will unearth incredible gold. You will begin to equip the saints for ministry, which is the second one. Empower others to flourish. This is actually starts to happen. When you start listening, you're making a, a, a big leadership decision. You're trying to say, we're going to storm that hill. But if you start by listening to your people and calling out their hearts, what will begin to emerge is they have ideas that make what you want to do infinitely better. And they have gifts that are stronger than yours in this area. And because you've always thought the leader is the one that is out front and has shining armor and is the boss and has all the answers, you're robbing your church of its gifts. 
You're actually depleting the church of its ability to accomplish the mission you're calling your people to. If you would listen, and then as you start listening, you go, oh, wow, there's real passion and real gifting over here. We're trying to storm that hill, and this person would do the bulk of that work way better than I would. Equip others to flourish. Set them up. Give the microphone to them. Help them play their role. When the body of Christ is not just one really big mouth and lots of tiny other body parts, you know, if that's the vision of the church is that we all have a, pl- a role to play, but we've got tiny ears and squinty eyes and we've got underdeveloped muscles and hands and feet because the body of Christ just sitting around listening to your mouth all the time. We're actually robbing the church of its power, but it's because we want to be impressive. We have to die to being impressive. Commandment three, take responsibility for organizational missteps. If something is going wrong, let it be a mirror. Jim Collins, great leadership thinker, says our failures are mirrors. Our successes are windows. We want to flip that always. We want to flip that always. That when things go well, we want to go, well, look at how well I'm doing. I'm doing it all right. And when things go wrong, we start looking around going, who blew it? Who blew it? Who's not holding up there into the bargain? If you do that, you will invite the gospel to flee. What you need to do is in, in, in steps where things are not going well and you got your team together, you, you take full responsibility. I haven't led well. I haven't equipped us for what we set out to do. I need to apologize to you and tell you I'm going to do all that I can to rework my ability to lead us into this. I will equip you for this. I will take you into this. Whatever it is, take the responsibility first. And the fourth one is the mirror image of that. Give praise quickly when things go well. Do you feel it? All of these things, these are just real simple commandments, practical things that every one of them is inviting you to step aside and to be the best man. And you go, I just want the bride of Christ to be beautified. I want the groom to be central, and I want to just play my role setting those two up to enjoy one another. Get out of the way. Death to being impressive. Secondly, secondly, death to being comfortable. Verse 8 and 9. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. You see, this, is, this list is the reason that the Corinthian leaders are looking at Paul and going, what kind of apostle is he? He suffers all the time. If he had the power of God, he'd have perfect health and finances. He'd be floating above. The sadness and the sickness of this world wouldn't touch him. It's almost like his feet wouldn't touch the ground. And Paul goes, let me tell you what it really looks like to be a gospel-centered leader. It looks like we're afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. All of these things happened to Paul. He's not speaking metaphorically. Like, we can just go trace his journey through Acts and realize that time and time again, his pursuit of Jesus was incredibly costly. And we need to recognize that throughout history, the pursuit of Jesus is a precarious path. Like if we say yes to that, what we're saying is yes to lots of difficulty if we're actually following Jesus. Because we're following a crucified Lord that said, follow me. And we go, well, that's a hard path. And he goes, yes, come on, come with me. It is not an invitation to perks and to platform. It is not an invitation, as it were, to position and authority, and respect. If our interest in ministry 
is a desire for perks and platform and position, we are not on the path of gospel-centered leadership. We're on some other path. And it's a path that has been designed by the prince of the power of the air. That's saying, you know, you know, you don't need to suffer. You don't need to go on this path. Just do something spectacular, and the people will love you for it. Throw yourself off the temple and let angels catch you. You don't need to carry a cross. Satan loves shortcuts, and he will whisper sweet nothings in your ear, saying, you don't need to suffer. You're intended to prosper. You're intended to get all that God has for you now. Lies. Lies from Satan. He wants to rob the world of the gospel being boldly and clearly displayed. And he will stop at nothing to get it. You see, it's a death to being comfortable. Four more commandments to work this out in our story. Commandment number five. You never graduate from being a servant. Wash feet. You want to know what gospel-centered leadership looks like? There's this amazing point in John 13. John does something really interesting in verse 3 and 4 of John 13. He says in verse 3, Jesus was meditating on something in his mind during the Last Supper. Do you know what he was meditating on in John 13, 3? I came from God. All things are under my control. I'm going back to God. He's meditating on those three things, all of them being, I am divine. I have all authority. It's all mine. Jesus is sitting there meditating on it. Verse 4, so he got up, took off his robe, he put on a towel, and he started scraping cow dung from between toes. Now, what is that? Jesus is saying, do you want to know what divine leadership looks like? It looks like figuring out how low I can go most consistently. His definition of greatness is going low. It's figuring out how to be downwardly mobile. It's figuring out how to say, he says, it is not by how many people serve you. The world will tell you, you will know someone is great if they've got lots of people serving them going, what do you need? I'm here for you. I'll do whatever you need. If you see someone like that that has a people trailing around behind them, in the world's eyes, we go, that is an important person. And Jesus goes, (laughs) not in my economy. That is not great. I'll tell you what's great. Wash feet. Your people should feel like, why does my pastor consistently go low to serve me? Why does he do that? The world should look at the structures and the life of the church and go, we haven't seen anything like that. We've seen bosses. We've seen authoritarian figures that always have the answers, but this I have not seen. Jesus was in a culture where Rome was an authority. The understanding of what authority structures looked like and what people were longing for, what the culture said was right and true and good, and what they needed the Messiah to be, he broke every paradigm, and he made no apologies for it. He said, I'm going to wash your feet This is the model that I'm leaving for you. Do likewise for your brothers. Commandment number five is never graduate from being a servant. Six, be bold and lead with conviction, no matter the cost. If you pay attention, the things I'm giving you are the reasons. I don't have time to draw all of this out. Uh, These are the reasons that if you went back and looked at Paul's suffering, these are the reasons that he suffered. 
so we could trace it out in the book of Acts. Why did he do these things? Why was he afflicted? And why was he struck down? And why did he come to the point of despair? It's these things. Never graduate from being so. Be bold and lead with conviction. This means that speak out when you need to speak out. Lead with conviction even if people are pushing back and going, well, we don't want this. If God has called you to it, you lead. But I will tell you, that will be death to your comfort. If you're always taking poll, trying to figure out where the winds are blowing with the community and what they're going to like and what they're going to praise you for, you are, you are refusing to embrace the discomfort that God has called you to in gospel-centered leadership. Seven, do the work of an evangelist. This is Paul uh, speaking to Timothy. He says that to him in 2 Timothy, but also it's his life because he realizes that I can stay comfortable I can get a group of Christians in a full room and we can have great music and have really worshipful moments and go success. That's not why we plant churches. That's not why we pastor churches. That's not why we lead God's people. We are to lead God's people on God's mission and they will not go somewhere their leader isn't leading them. If you haven't spent time with someone far from God in the last week, in the last two weeks, last month, if you're not commending the gospel to people who are uninterested in Jesus regularly, do not expect your people to do it. It will never happen. You will not lead them somewhere you're not willing to go. But that will cause you to be uncomfortable. That will be a threat to your schedule. It will be a threat to your productivity. It will be a threat to your view in the eyes of other people. You have to do the work of an evangelist. And then commandment number eight, do the work of a shepherd. You don't get to choose between the two, but the truth is really doing the work of a shepherd means you have an interruptible schedule. The struggle when I started to really be serious about leadership is that I had this productivity matrix. I've got my schedule worked out through the beginning of next year. I have to. I know who I'm meeting with and when, and I've got this. I've worked it to try to make sure I'm in the right places at the right time. and I can preserve the right space to stay healthy, but the struggle is that I started working everything through this productivity matrix like a, like a sausage maker. And I tried to put my relationships in there and my shepherding in there, and it doesn't work. Jesus was incredibly interruptible, but the man was on a mission. If we don't have time for our people to love them and enter the sadness with them, that will be a threat to your comfort. It will be death to your comfort, but it's, it's a must. Let me keep moving. Death to your very self. Death to your very self, verses 10 through 12. He makes it plain, saying, Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Very simply, three times over, he says, Death, death, death. He's talking about the death of your very self. Your preferences, your hopes, your dreams, the things that you are so clinging to. If you're going to serve people, you lay those down, you listen for theirs, you draw them out, you equip them, you're empowering them to deal with Jesus. It's not about yours anymore. It's death to you. Uh, for the sake of time, I'll just keep moving and I'll just give you these last two commandments. Commandment nine, uh, Femi actually mentioned it. One of the places where you will feel your old self dying is in the confession of sin. If you don't have someone in your life right now that knows everything about you. It has been said that if you live 99% in the light, you live in darkness. You're allowing the old man to continue to thrive in the shadows. And you're called to die. Confession of sin with the brothers closest to you regularly calling into the light leads to healing. 
there's a lot of pastors living double lives that are terrified that someone might actually see what's true about them. There is healing available, brothers. But James 5 says it starts with confession of sin, not to God. That is important, but to one another. That's where healing breaks in. The light has to shine into the dark places of our heart if we're really going to experience the death of the old man, the death of self. Commandment 10, lead with love. You should be the lead love person in your church. People should look at you and go, wow, does he love us. He loves me. And this is, cannot be conjured. It's, it's, it happens in a prayer closet where you're praying for your people by name. It happens in really feeling their pain and breaking over their sin, weeping over their sin that such when you preach it, you're not angry, but you're broken going, don't live there. Even when you're calling out sin and you're saying there is something better, your people will receive it as love if you actually love them. You're called to lead with love, but if you love, it will be death to your very self. Let love is an assault on everything that you've been clinging to. Love is risky. Love is painful. This is the activity of gospel-centered leadership. It's death. Well, what's the outcome? It's life. <laughs> uh, we serve a God and we celebrate a gospel that says life emerges out of death. And if you're willing to quit preserving your life but lay it down, you will see life emerge in real ways. In a few ways, let me just highlight verse 10 and 11. The first thing that we're going to see is that life will emerge in, in us first. Did you notice the so that? So that is very important. It's a purpose statement. Why do we carry the, the death of Jesus with us? So that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. Verse 11, um, and then so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. He's saying the same thing in two different ways, both of them following a purpose statement. So what he's saying is, why are you called to die? So that you can finally taste life. This is a merciful call of God on you. He's saying you think preserving your time and your energy and your gifts and your purposes, if you just can continue to draw back and be about you, that everything will be good. And what he's going is, you'll rob yourself of life. The reason I'm calling you to die is so that you could finally taste life. He says it's so that life will emerge. Jesus was actually onto something when he said, if you keep your life, you're going to lose it. But if you, you lose your life, you'll finally found it. We could multiply examples of this. I found this to be true in my marriage, that when I want to be about me and being served, you can feel the life draining out of my marriage. When it's 8.30 and we've finally gotten the kids to bed and I've been going since early in the morning and I think I just need it to be about me right now. I've got to preserve some me here. And all of a sudden, I don't listen and tend to my wife. I don't tend to her heart in those moments. I can feel it. Like by the time bedtime, it's just some life has drained out. Because I made a choice of me over her. But when I lay down my comfort, when I get up and start doing the dishes and cleaning the kitchen and being involved to serve her, and I start listening as I do and going, all right, I'm in this with you, that all of a sudden what you can feel is life bubbling back into the marriage. But it required death to me. That's what death does. It produces life. We start to feel it in our bones. Affection growing for my wife as I choose to serve her. Uh, my first post in ministry was a summer internship with youth kids. I traveled all summer with about 150 high school students. Uh, we did all sorts of different things, but it meant that I was up early if I wanted any time alone with the Lord. And then from about 8 or 9 in the morning until 2 in the morning, I'd be with different students. 
till 2 in the morning wrestling through some breakup or some struggle, these 15, 16-year-old kids that feel like their world's coming undone. And, and, uh, and it was one of those things. Every day I'm going, I'm kind of tired. I don't know if I can listen to another one of these stories. But in leaning in and learning to love, what I found is that at 2 a.m. when I'd collapse into my bed, I would go, I've never felt so alive. Never. Like it is, it's running through my veins. Life. But it required that I quit clinging so tightly. I had to lay it down. I'm sure Al could attest. He told me he's been traveling 200 days a year. 200 days a year on planes and in different cities far from home. That kind of cost, that's the laying down of a life. But I'm sure what you could tell us is that it's not ultimately a sacrifice. It's life. You're getting to see it emerge all around the globe. What we get to experience is life bubbling up in our souls. And it's not just in us. In verses 12 to 15, we see that it's life like throwing a rock out into the water in ever-rippling circles. It's ever-expanding. Verse 12 through 15, did you see it? He says, so death is at work in us, but life in you. He already said life in me twice over, but now he's saying life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it's all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it will increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Unbelievable. What he's saying is it's not just life in me, but it's life in you, and it's life in you that's now expanding. It's rippling out in ever-expanding circles. If you want a vitalized, vibrant life, a life that causes you to go, I wouldn't trade it for everything in the world. I wouldn't trade it for becoming a gold vessel or a silver vessel that's shining and gleaming and having it all together. No, no, no. If you lay your life down, and all of a sudden you feel life running through your veins, and then you see it infecting a community. You see the gospel radiating out because your people are looking at a leader that's willing to fill up the suffering of Christ with his own afflictions, right? Colossians 1, it doesn't mean that there's something lacking in Christ's afflictions as to their effectiveness, but to their application. That as people see you suffer, they can finally go, oh, I get it. That's how Jesus loves me. And it starts to radiate out, transforming a city, transforming a culture. And as we get to see that, it is a stunning blessing and a gift brothers do not be satisfied with reshuffling the christian deck do not think that if i could get 500 or a thousand or five thousand christians in a room celebrating jesus and listening to me preach that that's a success don't mishear me all i mean is if it's a bunch of christians that came from other churches i'd rather you not have planted the church the mission of god is to advance on darkness we want to see people right now that are living in these cities that think God has forgotten about them learn that he hasn't. And it will only happen when we say death to our preferences, our comfort, laying our lives down in love, gathering a community that starts to experience that life running through them, and we will see it radiate out. The lightness will burst into the darkness in that sort of setting. That's what radiates out from gospel-centered le leadership. One other note is that people will live abundantly around you. I often find that with pastors, the people closest to them are really worn out. Their family, their volunteers, they're all worn out and exhausted. Uh, if that's true, if to be closer and closer to you means people are more and more depleted of energy and life, something has gone awry. You should be a source of abundant life. 
but it starts by letting go of your own and experiencing life radiating through you. One final note. So this is how can we possibly do this? I don't know about you, but when I consider this, I go, I'm exhausted. Do you feel it? What I've just told you is that you have to die to everything about you that you've been clinging to every moment of every day from here on out. I'm like, man, I don't want to lead anymore. Because <laughs> that just sounds exhausting. That life thing sounds great, but the path to getting there, I don't know that I have the energy to do it. Beautifully, Paul doesn't leave us there. Because remember, he's a herald that loves to run into the center of town and say, Jesus has already done it. 16 to 18, this is what he does for us. He anticipates that at this point, you'll be feeling exhausted. And so he says, so we don't lose heart. He's anticipating that people will go, well, gosh, I'm kind of losing heart. No, 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 we don't lose heart. Let me tell you why. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Can we believe that together? As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What is he saying? He's saying this daily we need to remember. We need to remember the eternal things that this life has already been secured for us. The reason we don't have to cling to our lives, the reason we don't have to cling to them is because Jesus didn't cling to his. And in laying his life down, what he was doing was providing life for us that ultimately cannot be taken. So we can freely lay it down because what we know is what is eternal and what is true, what is not transient, is this. I will live perfectly fulfilled forever in his presence. So to try to cling to life for these few moments that I have on this earth is folly. It's folly. Jesus has set me free from having to cling to my life. An analogy that's been helpful for me to imagine this is imagine that over the next year you have to work as, an, as a janitor. And there's actually going to be two people working as a janitor. Uh, they're just going to be cleaning up, sweeping floors, doing these sorts of things. The other person is paid minimum wage. You know that you will be paid the same, but at the end of the year, if you complete the job, you'll get 3.5 billion naira. So that's what you know. The other guy doesn't know it. So now you're in the middle of doing your work, and the toilets are overflowing. Stuff's going everywhere. The guy that you're working with is over there muttering under his breath. This is, I, I'm not, I can't believe I'm cleaning the toilets again. This is, and you know what? The guy who knows if I complete this, 3.5 billion waiting for me. <laughs> like I've never been so happy to mop up toilet water in all my life. Why? He has real hope of glory. And quite frankly, 3.5 billion is pennies in God's economy. He said an eternal weight of glory that you cannot consider. It's beyond all comparison and estimate. What he's going is, if that would make you whistle while you work, then I'll give you something. Jesus has secured all the riches of heaven for all of eternity. You will never be able to exhaust the joy and the pleasures that he has for you. So whistle while you work. Lay your life down knowing I don't have to cling to it because he's delivered everything already. I have nothing to earn. I have nothing to prove. I don't have to make it about me ever again. If we lead like that, with the gospel at the center of all that we are, 
like a magnet. People will be drawn to the glory of God, not because we're special, but because we have stepped aside and said, behold. Amen.